And the next on the list in our gratitude journal entry, this moment of gratitude goes to a review written by uh, New York Peds SLP, so NY Peds SLP. This individual shared that this is their new go-to. So happy I found this podcast. There is such a wide variety of information and guests for the research-hungry pediatric SLP. Michelle and Aaron are so joyful, and you can tell how much they care about our field. I can't wait to see what else they have in store. Thank you. Thank you for getting it. We all want to do better, but we don't have access to research as quickly as some of our colleagues because enjoying a research article oftentimes requires us to pay for access, right? And that's not in all of our budgets, but we still want to do the best that we can. And that's all today's guest. Like today's guest is none other than Dr. Michelle Theron from FSU. And she is a researcher on building friendships for children and adults with disabilities that are AAC users. Y'all, this is like the missing link. This is, it's like the best of floor time meets AAC with a little bit of psychology and hope tossed in. And it's how do we help our students and our patients build a meaningful play connection and they use AAC. And so NYP's SLP, thank you for sharing our passion and research and joining us as we try to be that bridge in the research to practice and make research accessible for everybody. Also on that note, y'all go check out her lab on Facebook page. It's called AAC Connect Lab. So happy gratitude. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Culvertown, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, 
pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Okay, everybody. Today's guest I'm kind of geeking out on because I was incredibly socially awkward around the first time that we met because I couldn't believe like she was sitting catty corner and I was like, Michelle, play it cool. Michelle, play it cool. Also, when we're talking about like social skills and relationships today, so of course I geeked out with her. So I have none other than Dr. Michelle Therian, and I'm hoping to God I said your last name right. And y'all, she is the researcher with AAC Connect Lab. She's an assistant professor in the School of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Florida State University. And her lab focuses on building connections and making relationships, like building friendships, but from the perspective of individuals across the life continuum that have disabilities and use AAC. I mean, this is like Aaron's first or second love in the world of speech pathology is making connections. But how we do that for the little ones and the big ones, but we talk about the little ones here that have an AAC device. And she was right there. And we met, at, I didn't even say where we met. I got so excited. We met at the ASHA planning committee because she is one of the topic chairs for ASHA 2023 in Boston. So Dr. Michelle, thank you for coming on. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yes. So I hope I wasn't as awkward as I think that I was. Yay, social anxiety. Awkwardness is fine. I'm right there with you. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I mean, we all have our little niche areas within the world of speech language pathology, but can you talk about like your journey as a speech pathologist and how you found this area as like a researcher and then how you became to be the topic chair, because you're the topic chair of autism, right? Or no, it's AAC. Yes, AAC. Mm -hmm. AAC, yes. And it was one of the A's. There was a lot of tables and name tags at the convention planning. So, all right, take us from the beginning. What made you want to do all of this? This is actually kind of a hard question because I'm not actually an SLP. That was not how I was trained. So I went to school, college for the first time, and my major was English literature. I always said that my ideal job would be getting paid to read. Unfortunately, that's not actually a job. So I had to figure out what I wanted to do with it. I was a teacher for a little while, middle school English. Oh my God. I decided that was not what I wanted to do. I, I did love the children. However, I just, yeah, it was not for me. So, okay, on that note, Mrs. Peterson, my seventh grade English teacher, if by some happen chance from Gale Middle School, if you're listening, I am sorry because seventh grade and 13-year-olds are hard and Mrs. Peterson deserves an award. Also, she was going through menopause and I remember her having hot flashes and dripping sweat back in the day with like, and just like standing in front of seventh period 13-year-olds, like, they did not pay that woman enough. Also, wait, I do want to know, who's your favorite author? I hate favorite questions because I have such a hard time with it. I don't know. I used to say John Steinbeck, but I haven't read Steinbeck in a really, really long time. I pretty much, like, I don't know. I, I read very broadly, so I just like good stories. So I'm not, I don't have particular, I don't know, even genres that I go for. It's like, 
I'm on an Agatha Christie kick with Hercule Perot. Pure, I think, yeah. Yeah, I'm like the quirky little man with the mustache that always solves. It's like the OG murder mysteries from like back in the day. Yes. Okay, continue. So you decided that maybe teaching 13-year-old prepubescent children was not the right route. <laughs> not the right route, correct. I am married to a pediatric physical therapist. And so we... In our spare time, when we weren't working, volunteered with an organization in St. Louis, Missouri called the Disabled Athlete Sports Association. Shout out to Kelly Bellman, who founded that organization. But it was my first experience with AAC ever, was one of the athletes used AAC. And I was just like, what? What is this? This is so cool. So my first reaction, right, is this is so cool. And then as the years have passed, I've been like, oh, but it's also so limiting. I want to figure this out, right? Like both things are true. And so I kind of floundered for a little while. Like, how am I going to do this? I'm not an SLP. I didn't study that. I don't know where to go from here. I ended up getting a master's degree in computational linguistics. What? What is that? (laughs) It's like the intersection of computer science and linguistics. And so it's a lot about how computers can understand human language and translate. It's like the translation between computer language and human language. So people who have that degree work on things like speech recognition or kind of like AI kind of things related to speech. So it was fascinating. So I did take some of the classes that SLPs take, like phonetics. And like, you know, I learned about sound waves and all this stuff, but I never took it from the clinical angle. It was more this kind of teaching computers how to do that angle. I thought that I would then work on design of systems. That turned out to not be where my heart lied either. Like I was not, I was not happy only working with computers. I wanted to be with people. So again, a crisis of like, what am I going to do with my life? And then I, you know, in the middle of the crisis, uh, took a job as a therapy aide at a pediatric clinic. Um, So I did some cutting out of things like sensory letters and laminating things for people But in the process of doing that, I spent a lot of time with SLPs, OTs, PTs, psychologists, like the whole gamut of kind of pediatric therapeutic services. And I learned a lot from just observing, kind of an amazing amount, I feel like, (laughs) like being around people who do that can just, I don't know, can teach you so much. So as I was in that job, I recognized that there were many kids, so it was a center that was particularly for kids with autism diagnoses. We had some other kids there, but generally that was the majority. And I noticed a need for something besides just working on speech, which is what I mostly saw happening. You know, like, couldn't they have some other option to get what they want to say out? keep working on speech, of course, but like, what about now? (laughs) You know, what about now when speech is so hard? Can we give them an option? And so I wrote a proposal to like start an assistive technology program there. Uh, (laughs) You just casually wrote a proposal. Oh my God, I love you. That is like, I mean, in one breath, complain about a situation, recognize the there is an issue in the next breath. Let's save the world. I Love that. Okay, continue. So, this was like, I don't know what year, 
you know, a little bit before 2010. It was kind of when like iPads were new and like no one really knew that they could be a therapeutic tool. And so we called our assistive technology program iLearn and we just like brought in the iPads and brought in iPod touches, which I don't think anymore. Yeah, we just kind of started doing it. I did a lot of self-study into research so that I was doing things that were soundly grounded in science in some way. I don't remember how long I did that, but I remember getting to a point where I was like, okay, I don't know what to do anymore. Like the answers to my questions, I cannot find by searching the research. And so again, on a little bit of a whim, kind of like the proposal writing, I applied to a doctoral program. Uh, Your husband must be of the same genre of mine. (laughs) I had no sense of of what it meant to get a PhD, really. It was more like, I have questions. And these people seem like they probably could help me figure these questions out. And also, I don't know if I really want to do this, but if I get in, I'll deal with it then. You know, I'll answer the question of if I really want this then. So where did you go for your PhD? So I was lucky to get my PhD at Penn State on the AAC Leadership Project, which was a grant funded by the U.S. Department of Ed. And that project has been going, I don't know how long I'm the worst person for remembering all these details, but it has been going since before I was there, and it is still going today. So anyone interested, you know, you get to work with Janice Light and David McNaughton and Krista Wilkinson and Kathy Drager. You know, it's just like, People who have been studying this for a long time and who are really experts in the field. So it was quite an experience. And so that kind of brought me here, I guess. (laughs) I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I gave you a long answer. Everybody's walk is unique and it helps us know. Like I love learning about like a speaker at the start of a course, right? Like what were their personal intimate experiences that made them fill this void that we didn't even know existed, but all of a sudden you're like, wow, that is a problem, right? And wow, we need to do better. And then you just do write a grant, write a proposal. I mean, like, just, we just fix it. Yes. Okay. So you went to FSU and now, did you go straight from Penn State to FSU? I did. I went straight from Penn State to FSU. And I think now that I'm like thinking back on our conversation, A part of your question was about like how I started doing the friendship and the social interaction part. And I think that's actually a good thing to talk about because I'm working with doctoral students right now who are similar to me where they're like, I just think AAC is awesome. Like, okay, but like, (laughs) okay, we need to find a space for you. Like, what's your space within that? Because AAC seems like a small space. Like, it's okay to just think I'm going to research AAC, but there are really so many smaller spaces where you can really dig in and become, you know, an expert in a particular area. Caregiver coaching for routines-based early intervention. Can I put that request out? Like, I need that. I need that because you know what? Right now, I think I might literally be the only SLP in the Midlands of Columbia. And y'all, if you're listening and I'm wrong, 
shoot me a message and tell me. But like, I'm the only one that's doing AAC and EI. And I go to present and people look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, an 18-month-old can't do this. And I'm like, do you want to see the videos where they're telling me what I need to be doing? I have this precious child that she told me this week, and I was trying to understand from her thought process. She has a very robust vocabulary. She's level three lamp at 18 months and navigating this sucker like it's nothing. And she goes over, tells me play, tells me chick, starts flapping and starts looking around. And I'm like, baby girl, what do you want to play? Come on, mama, tell me what you want to play. And she's like flapping and goes back and play chick and then comes back to me with a worm. And I'm like, okay, it's a plastic worm. Sorry, I should clarify. (laughs) Oh my God, the look on her face. So it's a plastic worm. Mom, I'm sorry. Santa for Christmas got her this new game to help with her fine motor because we have some brachia plexus stuff going on from complications with delivery. Y'all, brachia plexus injury is an injury in the innervation of the shoulder and it's compromised her right shoulder down to, it almost looks like torticollis, but it actually impedes how she holds that entire essentially quadrant of her body. So we've been working on like range of motion, crossing midline, like technically PT is, but like, you know, we're interspersing their strategies. But like she wanted to play the baby chick game where she feeds the worm and she wanted me to imitate her. And then she went to colors and she told me how to play. And it was just like, but like, that's what I need. I need more of that. And yes, please. Okay. Continue. I'm sorry. I got excited. This was was great communication. That's exciting to me as well. This is what I have just been telling my doctoral students that what I was encouraged to do was to make a list of all the questions I have, just like make a list. And I still have that list. I called it the what I wonder list. And then we kind of worked through like prioritizing that and thinking about what really mattered. Um, And that's what led me down, like prioritizing communication as a tool to build relationships with people. Do you do anything with the DIR floor time there? Because I know they're in Florida. Stanley Greenspan's outfit? No, no I do not. That, that would be a really good idea for one of your students, man. Collaborate there. Okay. One day I want to go back and get a PhD. We'll just add that to the to-do list. In the meantime, we have to pay for archery lessons. So like the 10 year old. <laughs> That's where our budget is for the we got horseback riding. So similar. It's yeah. so. Oh, why is it so expensive to have extracurriculars? That's a budget, a line item in the pack Dawson family line items. Okay. So then let's go, let's hit the road. Okay. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, but can we start with like, you have this amazing research lab and it's called AAC Connect Lab. Why did you call it? I love the history on why people call their labs these things. I chose that because I feel like one of my main aims is to support connection building generally. So obviously we just talked about friendship and social interaction, and that's kind of the primary connection I focus on, but I don't think that happens in a vacuum. And so I think about the connections between SLPs and researchers. That's like another connection that's really important in order to get our research into the hands of people who can use it and make a difference, right? The connection between teachers and parents, right? Or SLPs and parents, right? Like all of these connections are going to impact the quality of life of the individual who uses AAC. And so that's what I named the lab so that it would kind of be encompassing of all of those different ways of building connections. 
And I know everybody's lab is different. So is your lab doing intervention and therapy or are they generating research? What does it look like inside the lab? It's just a research lab. So not doing therapy, although our department, our School of Communication Science and Disorders at FSU is in the process of renovating a space, which we have not come up with a name for quite yet, but we're working on it, that kind of simulates a really awesome preschool space. It is not a preschool, but it will have, you know, a big like motor component, a sensory component, literacy component, like all of these really great things. And then we're hoping to work with the clinical educators in our department and the students in our department to bring programming to that space. And so I think that that is going to be a really cool opportunity for us. When I was a clinic coordinator at Francis Marion University, our department chair, her Dr. Francis Byrne, her focus area is actually early intervention, but not just within the wheelhouse of birth to three, but up to five. And so we had two preschool rooms embedded within our clinic and they were set up just like that. And we had, I mean, down to like the flow of the room, like you had your little kidney table or whatever it's called for you know, tabletop activities, which we did great. That was great for the PFD component, like how we engage in pediatric feeding disorders within an early childhood sped classroom. It was so foundational for those children that in their transition process from IFSP to IEP and like accessing language and like coaching parents through like those, the routines of a classroom and making it language rich. It was phenomenal. Although my favorite part, honestly, was the little tricycles that we had. And we would ride the tricycles through the labs. And like, I mean, Shell got on the tricycles and like was like getting it. And we were communicating on our devices, like, watch me, I'm going to beat you. And then like, that's awesome. My recommendation to FSU is buy tricycles that support your faculty. The brain break activity for everyone. Yeah, it really was. I was like, but we learned through play. That's how you make a deep connection is like, yeah, okay, love this. Okay, when we're going through here, how is this so vital for individuals with disability across the lifespan, that connection? What does that deep connection open for them as a as a human? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a hard question to answer, but it would be a hard question to answer for anyone, right? I mean, when I'm writing up the studies that I do related to friendship and social interaction, I always struggle because I have this kind of idea of what an introduction should be, right? You know, you start with X and then you move on to this and then it's... Anyway... And I always struggle because of the first thing I want to do is a section on like why friendship is important. And I always type and erase and type and erase and type and erase because why is friendship important to all of us? You know, like it's a really hard argument. We all agree, right? Like I don't think anyone would disagree that friendship is an important part of our lives. And yet like being able to articulate why is kind of like, I don't know why. It just is, right? We can say what the research says about that, but I don't feel like that captures really why it's important, 
right? So certainly there's research out of psychology that says things like, right, it's protective, right? Like you have better health outcomes, you have better mental health outcomes. Research out of education says that if you have good social relationships, that your academics improve, right? Like, so these things are are shown through the research. And yet, I don't know, to me, it's not important to work on friendships so that academic skills improve. Although I like to use that point to sell it to teachers and administrators, that friendship is something they should care about, you know, but to me, like, friendship is enough of an end, like it doesn't have to contribute to something else too. Uh, And so making it's hard to argue why, but I just feel why. (laughs) It's giving it the heart. There is nothing worse than being lonely. Like when you're lonely, like everybody sit there for a second. When you're lonely, think about the time that you're you're lonely, you're vulnerable, you're at risk, you're insecure. It opens the gates for isolation and depression. And all of us at one point in time in our lives have felt those feelings and our feelings are valid, right? But friendship offers the opportunity to spread joy and love and light. Right. And so much of the research just shows that like people with disabilities in general have access to those experiences in this. I don't want to say in the same way as everyone else, because I don't think everyone else does it in the same way, first of all. And second of all, I don't think that like our goal is always to make it so that everybody experiences things in the same way. That's not really the goal, but if, Like you said, people are telling you, I feel lonely. I wish I had friends, right? Then we have to listen, right? And so I think because communication plays such a large role in both developing and maintaining friendship, that people who use AAC are at somewhat of a disadvantage, even if they're really good AAC communicators. Like, even if we're talking about, like, I can compose full sentences, I can, you know, meet most of my communication needs using AAC, even then, there are barriers to friendship that exist for them that don't exist for me because I can use speech, you know? 1,000%, yes. We have a trail that we hike as a family, and it's a phenomenal trail. It's over in Casey, y'all, if you ever come to... Columbia or the Midlands part of South Carolina, it's the Casey Trail and the 12,000-year-old park. They found a woolly mammoth there, hence the 12,000-year-old park. Out of context, that doesn't make sense. But the trail is designed for ADL accessibility. So it's very flat. It's very wide. And we passed a eye gaze user on the trail. And my, my sons were like, mom, like they're whispering. They're like, mom, is that like the ones that you use? And he was an adult and wrapped and wrapped and warm and because it was kind of brisk outside. And I was like, yes, but mommy does things with little itty bitty versions. And, you know, we were, you know, as a mom, there's that barrier of I want them to ask questions and do it in an uplifting, positive way, but I don't want them to cause offense or hurt someone's feelings, right? And All the mommies in the room know exactly what I'm talking about, right? But my husband has an older special needs brother. Our world is a little more open. Disability aware. Yeah. 
Yes. We have more disability awareness. Yes. We talked about it and they waved hi and said hi. And then we went on about our business and we were in the process of shooting pterodactyls. So like we had grand, obviously we had to go back to, you know, decimation of pterodactyls to protect Casey and the woolly mammoths. But I digress. But like that's when I think of the barriers, especially for pediatrics is there's a fear there because it's different. And how do we overcome that fear? You gave a beautiful answer. Also, I can see your heart in this. Like, oh my God, just so much love. Why is it important that SLPs think about friendships for their clients across ages and disabilities? And I think of it as the next step. Like, how do we integrate this into our IEPs, like our IFSPs? So I just put, wrote a paper on this. It is in Perspectives. So check that out. Um, what was the title of the paper? Oh, gosh. You are asking hard questions. <laughs> I don't have to look, but I can try to look fast while I'm talking. Let's see if I can multitask. I don't know if I can. That's, that's totally fine. We can edit out the time it takes to look. But like, y'all, this woman is published like a lot. That's why I was sitting there like, oh, my God. It's that woman who I love, but I can't say her last name. <laughs> so like. Well, good. It's a very Americanized version of a French name. So as long as you kind of don't think you know French, then you probably are going to say it right. We were talking this morning about, you know, Dawson and Goose said something. He's like, sometimes I think we should have gone with Lawson, but Bear would never have been able to say the L. I'm like, do not pick on your brother. (laughs) But he wanted the double L because his first name's Ryland. And I'm like, okay, I get that. That's fine. Okay, so the paper is called AAC and Friendships, Considerations for SLPs. It was in Perspectives, yeah. So, and I worked on that with some collaborators, but if you search my name, you should be able to find it. And we talked about the goal of SLPs developing a friendship mindset. So it's hard to always have a research-based specific intervention that you're going to do for everything that you want, right? For everything that you want to do as an SLP. Research is just not fast enough to keep up with that. But we encourage this friendship mindset where if you're writing goals for an IEP, for example, that you think about, okay, if friendship is my ultimate goal, right? I'm not going to write in the IEP, like, we'll make one friend. That is not <laughs> not super valuable, right? But I'm also, that's really sad. So, right? yeah, that's so limiting. We don't want one friend. I'm not going to write that necessarily because maybe I don't have the support from the administration to like target friendship if I write the word friendship. Or, you know, old SLPs who work with adults will say things like, well, insurance is not going to fund a friendship goal. But if you think about the factors that contribute to making friends, then you can start to see, oh, oh, I could write a goal for that, right? Like we, social communication is totally within our scope of practice, right? So I could write a goal for social communication and not just social skills that we work on in this like isolation way, but like a goal that actually gets this child that I'm working with engaging with a peer in a natural way, in ways that kids interact with each other. (laughs) If I can keep that in mind, then I can write a communication goal that 
has friendship in mind, right? So I'm keeping this friendship mindset, even while I'm writing a goal that focuses more on expressive language or receptive language or whatever. I'm trying to think of how to word that goal and what that would look like. And that's tough. So if you have suggestions here, I'm all open for suggestions. And I do. So in that paper, we created a table that goes by age. So we have a preschool section in the table, an elementary section in the table, secondary and adult. A sample goal that like kind of demonstrates a friendship mindset, although they're not written in like good IEP language. So of course, like we would have to take them and make them more specific and measurable and all of those good things. We were not trying to do that. We were giving a kind of broad goal. And then some like sample treatment activities, what kind of materials you might use, and then what aspect of friendship development that that sample goal would address, right? So for example, the preschool sample goal was student will increase communicative participation within interactions with peers. Of course, you could write that in lots of different ways. And the sample treatment activities and materials came directly from another one of my studies where I will say like the outcomes of my study were not friendship, right? Because friendship is squishy. It's, it's, it's hard I just saw a card from Hallmark that says we've aged like good wine, but where did the box of chocolates go? And it was two 80 year old biddies in a bikini and they had gotten squishy together. And so like, Perfect. (laughs) Sorry, that was a very, yes, Hallmark, man, they get me with their cards and their movies. Okay, continue. (laughs) So sorry. So what I mean by that is that friendship is hard to measure and our attempts to do it, I think like miss the mark, right? So if we just say, well, how many friends do you have? Let's just count them. That's the way we measure friendship. Well, you know, Like that's, I mean, I think we could all say like, yeah, but that discounts how important my one friend is. Like that is not right. Okay. So then we try to like- not quality. I want quality. Yes. Yes. And quality is not necessarily observable. Although again, people have tried to do this. I just think we aren't there yet. So I would like to work on that. You know, future research, got plenty of, plenty of things in mind. But so in the studies that I did, I was measuring things like, number of symbolic communicative turns within the interaction, right? So um, how many times did they communicate to each other, the two kids? Again, this is not friendship, (laughs) but it is something that you won't have friendship without it, right? If you never communicate with a peer, it's going to be hard to make friends. So it's kind of that friendship mindset thing, right? So if the goal is increasing communicative participation, This is the activity that we did in my study. It was just looking at storybooks together, which is something that kids do in preschool classrooms. So I was trying to make a natural context. Also, storybooks are really nice because they give you a shared vocabulary. I would love to do more work outside of the storybook area with like play and other things. But storybook is very nice because it is a structured activity where that vocabulary is going to be similar. We can find like characters and topics that both kids are interested in, like trucks or Dora the Explorer or, you know, any whatever characters they're interested in. And for me, the most important thing about the intervention study that I'm talking about that I have done is that the two 
children. So one child who uses AAC and one child who doesn't. Although I would argue that you could do it with two kids who use AAC. There's no reason that a child's friends have to be kids without disabilities. That's a little bit. Beautiful, beautiful (laughs) world. I'm good. Yes. But most important, one important thing about that study is that the two children are taught communication skills together and not, it's not the child with a disability who has to fix their communication as much as it is that the two children have to learn how to communicate together. And so, you know, the peers, like you were saying, right, like with your kids walking on the path, like they have to know things so that they can interact appropriately with someone. And it's similar for these kids in preschool classrooms, right? If they've never interacted with a child with a disability before, then they are going to need to learn some communication and interaction skills in order to make that interaction successful. So so we work with both kids and we teach them that, you know, it's kind of the way a conversation works around a book is that you take turns. So like one person shows their friends something in the book and tells them something about it. And then that person needs to chill and wait and let the other person show something in the book. And so those are the only skills we teach it is preschool. So <laughs> we have to keep it pretty like preschool level, right? Like we're not teaching anything super complicated. It's show, tell and wait. Those are like the key words. I don't know when that's ever fully learned, though, because I know some second graders that the weight piece, oof. (laughs) For sure. And especially with the AAC that we're using as a part of the study. So we're using an iPad, which is cool, and everyone wants to touch it. And we're also like, so what we've done is take the storybook and take pictures of the entire thing and turn it into basically a communication storybook. So it is using visual scene display technology. So they're not using traditional kind of grid-based AAC within this interaction, but it's basically like an ebook that has communication built in. And so it doesn't read the book because when three-year-olds sit together with each other looking at a book, they don't read it. They look at the pictures and they talk about it and they laugh about it, but they don't actually read it. Yeah, exactly. It's pre-literacy. So they're turning the pages. They're talking about what they see. And that's what it's meant to do. So they can touch different spots on the screen. And it might say, you know, if, if the book is Little Blue Truck, it might say like, look at the blue truck or what's he doing or any kind of normal <laughs> like communication thing that you might say when you're looking at a book. And we try to make them really engaging and exciting for them to do together. So that is kind of one example going through the the goal, the materials, and kind of what you're working on in that. This is amazing. Okay. I'm just trying to sh- troubleshoot how to replicate that. I'm in my head. Sorry, folks. I'm just thinking about like, how can we replicate that more when like, and create peer interactions for like the prior to three, because once they turn three, they're like, normally our little ones that are AAC users are here in South, like they get referred to early childhood special education classrooms, right? So like we have that natural progression to the there, but it's capturing them before that. So folks, if you have, do you want to hear a dream? 
I have a dream. Okay, so this is this is very exciting. I get in my sits bones, folks. It makes me sit up. I want to create a interactive AAC circle time at a public library for toddlers, for the little ones, right? Like that to me would be a phenomenal like activity. We have circle time and I cherished those memories as a mom of taking my kids to circle time. And I mean, yes, did it, was it difficult to schedule in my work life? Yes, but life is more than work. And I have a dear friend who, you know, I, we became friends because I treated her daughter and she didn't get to do those activities because of the fragility of her daughter. And now she has a typically developing second child and, you know, they've been able to do that. She's like, I didn't know what I was missing and I want to create that. So if you're listening and you have the collaboration and opportunity to partner with your local library and you're also an AAC uh, fan like us, maybe let's spitball this, write a grant, write a proposal and make it happen. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. We speak it into the universe here. We can manifest. That's the word Aaron uses. We're manifesting. Okay. I think though that 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 leads into something else that I'm working on. So I'm going to keep going right with the school stuff, because I think a lot of kids do make friends at school. It is like the primary place where they spend a lot of time with other kids. However, it is not the only place. And I think what you just said for that younger set, right? Like the library, that's a community place where kids might interact with other kids. And if it becomes a regular thing, then they might develop a friendship. But I have sat and thought about that. Like, where do kids play? Like, where do they play and interact with other friends? So another kind of branch of my research tree, uh, to use the analogy, right, is related to playgrounds and how kids who use AAC experience playgrounds. And so that that's kind of in its infancy. I don't I don't have any answers. And I actually get a lot of emails from SLPs when they hear that I do that. Like, what should I do? This is happening. Or like, my school's doing this. Is that good? And I'm like, well, I, we don't know yet. <laughs> we don't know yet. Research is so slow and we want it to be faster. But I think playgrounds are a good space. And in general, like, all community spaces are things I want to look at, like a children's museum. Like how could we make a children's museum a place that supports communication and engagement for kids who use AAC? I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. There is. I'm trying to pull it up. There's something called The Good News by a guy named Tank. And they had on here about a – oh, my gosh, I'm trying to find it. Um, I told you all I don't – well, actually follow that many SLPs on my personal feed. I follow a lot of like happy good news things on my personal feed and social media and circumference animals. There's a fabulous Instagram page called Round Boys and it's spherical animals that move and fall and do fabulous things. But one of them was a group of children that created a fundraiser to completely demolish their current playground to make an accessible playground for all. And the children that were fundraising where like two of our friends couldn't play with us on the playground and that's not fair to them. They did it for two peers that were in a wheelchair, one of them an AAC user. And I feel like as a society, we need to make a shift that all playgrounds should be accessible, just period, from their get-go. 
I mean, long gone are the days of the hot metallic slides that we all probably sustain second degree burns on in the summertime, but like, yes. Okay. So when that research comes out, so then I wonder how is language going to look different in an accessible playground versus an inaccessible playground? Absolutely. And what does accessible mean when you're talking about language, right? Like I think mostly we think about physical disabilities. And so building things like ramps and, you know, different stations, right, that are at different heights or whatever, you know, like making things physically accessible. But that's not the only thing that should be a part of that accessibility definition. And so I've seen, you know, at least people who have looked into this for like kids with autism are like, our playgrounds need to have both spaces where someone can kind of remove themselves from all the sensory stimuli or places where there is more (laughs) sensory stimuli, right? Like things they can touch or, or water features or sensory, right? Is another area of accessibility to think about. And I think communication is something that we don't really think about when we think about playgrounds, because my hypothesis would be that even if a playground is fully physically accessible to someone who uses AAC, that there would still be barriers to communication on that playground. And if they can't communicate, then it's hard to engage other people in that play. So they might be able to go down the slide, but they're doing it by themselves. Um, And so, so yeah. (laughs) Last summer, was it last summer? might've been a year and a half ago. I had a young lady on who created, she partnered with a local charity and they created AAC boards for her community playgrounds. And like, that's phenomenal. And there are pre-existing AAC boards that you can order. I know Talk To Me Technologies has vinyl ones. I don't know if they're latex free or not, like especially within the paint. And that can be a barrier for some children because I've worked with plenty of kids that have latex allergies, can't have certain types of foods because they actually fall within the same family. But they have pre-existing boards that you can adhere to like the chain link fence. And we did that at a clinic that I worked at. We got those boards and put them in every single therapy room in the entire building. And they had a outdoor playground, like an outdoor backyard that was was built just like you described for seekers and avoiders. And we had a autistic volunteer. She's an adult that actually studied visual arts. She hand painted one and working with her, collaborating her on that thought process. And it changed my selection of vocabulary when we collaborated because she could bring a neurodiverse lens to the table to say, well, I would prefer this vocabulary because I feel yet da, 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 da. And I'm like, okay, yes, because we have to listen to their voices, but yes, continue. That's amazing. I feel like I see lots of those playground boards and I think it's an awesome first step. I also don't think it's really the solution. I mean, like I said, I think it's a start. We don't know what else to do right at this point because people haven't studied this. And so I'm hopeful that we can find some things that are more in the moment, you know, where you don't have to like leave the activity that you're doing to go to a board and talk, but we're not there yet. (laughs) We're not there quite yet. What if there were placards spaced throughout, like miniature versions that were just like places where you naturally see a kid huddle, like the top of the slide or 
adjacent to the swings or we have this one thing that makes me nauseous to this day where you like spin the wheel and it makes everybody spin. But I mean, like where a kid's hand would naturally go on a playground feels like to me where you're a genius. I love that idea. Yes. I really think that that's important. And then thinking about like what words do kids actually use in all of these spaces? Right? Get out of my way. That's, that's another space for, for research, right? Like I want to know what kids are really saying in different places on the playground. Where do they actually play with other kids and where do they play by themselves? You know, all of those things I think are ripe for research. Just haven't quite done it yet. <laughs> Okay, if I can help in any way, shape, or form, or if you want to, like, get my kids to carry a microphone around when they're on a playground, let me know. That's awesome game. That is the plan. Someday. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm slightly terrified as to what my Theodore would say with a microphone. Well, that's why you need lots of kids so that we we get averages instead of uh, uh, specific conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay. All right. So then how, what, as an SLP right now in the community, what can, what can I do to support friendship building, like creating the framework of the possibility for my AAC users? Like what, and I know you're talking about like the research being in its infancy, but like, what do I do? Yeah. I mean, I think keeping a depth, a sorry, now I'm mincing words. Um, I think understanding what friendship really is and actually keeping that in your mind when you're trying to do peer stuff, if peer stuff is a thing you do, um, is really important. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, not everybody has the exact same definition of what a friendship is. But if we look at the research on the whole, um, we see people, including people who use AAC, defining friendship in some similar ways. No one would define a single friendship that way. But if we think about, like, generally the concept of friendship, you know, we we talk about, like, well, we both like each other, right? Like, that, that reciprocal liking is, like, you know, technical terms, right? We both like each other. Um, we would choose to hang out. We have a shared interest that... Right. We have a shared interest. Um, we have a, an equal status at some level. And I feel like that's one of the hardest ones when we're talking about therapy. <laughs> um, because I think that's the one that people forget. So, um, you know, there are peer tutoring interventions, right? Where I teach a peer to help a child with a disability, which um, that's great, right? Like <laughs> we, we want people to have empathy and to provide support and help. Um, and also if that's your role, then you're probably not friends. Like you're something, right? <laughs> um, but it's more like you're, you're a, a caregiver, you know, on some level, um, that you're providing a, a service. And so it becomes 
less equal or less, um, I I hate saying equal because I don't think that everyone has to contribute the same thing to a relationship for um, for it to be friendship. And I also don't want to say that helping is not a part of friendship because it is, right? Like we all would say that our friends help us. Uh, but I think if the help is one way, then that sets up a certain dynamic. So something that is tricky is thinking about like, what's an authentic role that the, the child who uses AAC can have in whatever I'm setting up, right? Like, I don't want to like fake it, like they have some skill that they can bring, but like legitimately, like what can be their job in whatever activity I'm setting up so that they have a valued role in the relationship and are not just the person that is being helped. Um, Yeah, that feels pretty important to me. And when I look at the body of literature around like how we're using peers, it is overwhelmingly as like mini teachers or mini SLPs um, rather than as friends or peers or classmates. Um, And the hard part about that is that it does like all of those studies show that they're effective, right? (laughs) But then we have to think about like what they're effective for, you know? What's the outcome that we're measuring? And is that an outcome that leads to friendship or is is it not? And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it if your outcome that you're choosing to work on is not friendship, right? Like not everyone has to do what I do. Um, But if you're doing that, thinking that you are helping kids become friends, I think you're wrong. (laughs) Like, I think you're mistaken there, that you're not actually helping kids become friends. You might be, like, raising their awareness about how to support people with disabilities, right? You might be supporting communication and language development for that child with a disability. But I don't think you're you're supporting friendship unless you're considering those things. Yeah, so this triggers a thought, This is spot on in my head. Sorry. There's like four different thoughts going through my head. Okay. So we had Morgan Oates on in January about neurodiversity and she's with, um, she's getting her PhD at the Ohio state university with Allison Bean, right? Yes. And so she was talking about how when a neurodiverse, um, peer talks to another neurodiverse peer, they have matched, what was it? Um, oh, it's not minimal pairs. God bless America. That's phonological processor. I, um, give me two seconds. It is, this is why I don't teach, um, double empathy. That's the thought process, double empathy, right? But like she talked about how one way they communicate and with each other is information dumping. And I was like, oh my God, That is my goose danger. Like my 10-year-old information dumps all historical facts. But like that's him building. That's how he creates friendships. And like bless his little heart, he has found two buddies in class that also information dump historical facts. So like, and they just thrive in this little trio of like, um, their friendship is based upon information dumping of facts, but like there are, 
So I'm kind of wondering, and this gets back to additional branches of like research is if that's how a neurodiverse child builds friendship is they info dump at each other over a shared topic, but they thrive in this process. I mean, are we then looking at their unique fringe vocabulary to make sure that they have access to to the French and Indian War, which I didn't know was like as pivotal a moment in American history as it apparently was, or as my goose bear or boo bear Dawson, like origami and how you have to fold and create crisp lines. And, and then there's different types of paper. And then like the papers influence the outcome of, is it to sit and be pretty or is it functional origami? Because you can make origami for a purpose aside from looking. It's just very like, (laughs) there are children. I love them. (laughs) Just one day they're going to listen to these and be like, mom, why did you talk about that? But like, I may or may not also information dump, but this is, this is kind of what I'm thinking. Like, how do we, how are we sitting back and looking at their unique vocab as it relates to how they could build friendships? That's cool. Right. And I think about, um, how systems could support that, you know, um, and it's tricky right? Because the more vocabulary you have, the deeper the level, you know, the more organization is needed, the more navigation is needed. And it, it does become tricky, um, especially with the systems that we have. I, I, I keep going back to, well, two things. One, the importance of literacy, right? In, in, in the space of like, if I really want to say anything that I can possibly think up in my head, being able to spell is going to make a world of difference. That's one. Um, and I do not do literacy work, but I have many lovely colleagues who do. Um, and then Kelly Farquharson. <laughs> okay. The other thing is, is visual scene displays and video visual scene displays, which I also have colleagues who are really working on that in the space of social conversations because they allow for more use of digital pictures. Wait, what are these words that you're talking about? So digital scene display. So it is just a digital picture with communication hotspots. A video visual scene display is literally a video that pauses sometimes and you can touch different spaces to say different things. Um, so the, the two combined, I think expand what we traditionally think of as AAC. And I think that's good. Um, I don't think AAC needs to be one thing. And there are so many possibilities out there. I'm digressing a little bit, but in a conversation with a person with aphasia that I met at a speaking thing, um, his AAC system was the photos app on his phone, the calculator on his phone, right? Um, and he was able to communicate with me things that he couldn't say with word, spoken words because of those two apps. And that's AAC. So like, I like to expand what we think of as AAC, but um, visual scene displays as one component of how we communicate 
can be so powerful in social interactions because we are used to use sharing pictures with friends and videos with friends. Like the thing we do as a society now, um, I think probably always, but like now it's so easy to take videos, right? Like we don't have those huge home video cameras that we're taking. You know, like we can do everything with like a teeny little phone and, and really all of these um, AAC systems dedicated or not can take pictures. Um, so, you know, being able to take a picture of something cool that you did over the weekend, right. And build in communicative, communicative hotspots that tell the story of what you did there and what you, what you learned, what was fun, right. Like in, in full phrases, it doesn't have to be, but like, then you don't have to generate all of those words. You don't have to find all of them in this thousands and thousands of words system. Of course, it takes someone programming that. So there is a downside, uh, but I think there are some really good benefits to being able to do that and share yourself um, through pictures in that way. Okay. I felt a person in the universe question, but I don't have time to program and I can't build to program. Aha, but you actually can pull up the ASHA super bill for speech language pathologist and you will find CPT codes for reimbursement for you spending an hour with the patient's device and actually programming it. So if you're under a productivity parameter, which let's be fair, most private practice SLPs have to meet productivity. There is a measurable tool that you can then bill for to program that child's device and get reimbursed for your time to show your supervisors that not only is this necessary for the outcomes of this patient, this child to be able to communicate and engage, but you're also still meeting your productivity chart. So like, and that's, that's a real barrier in the world for practitioners that like sucks, but like it can be overcome. But if you just know the right tools, ASHA Superbill, it's right on ASHA. Just type in a Google. It's a PDF there. Done. Perfect. Okay. Good. These are the things that as a not a practicing SLP, I am not an expert. Oh, <laughs> I got you. I got you. This is great. Okay. One, I have a request. Can you please introduce me to the people that are doing the research on a visual scene displays and all of these like that put the movies in? Because I want to know more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then we're like over on time and I have to be respectful of your time. So two, can we come back and do this again in the fall? Like, or like winter? Absolutely. This is great. Okay. And then um, I always, um, can you share your information where people can find you? Sure. I'm not super active, but the AAC Connect Lab does have a Facebook page. And so if you just search on Facebook, AAC Connect Lab, you will find that. And then I do have a Twitter, although Twitter is so weird these days, but um, <laughs> it is at Dr. underscore MC Fair. T-H-E-R-R, which is the beginning of my last name. So that's an option. Um, you can always search my name and email me at work. I am. I, I get lots of emails from SLPs. Uh, something that many people don't know is that authors can share 
their work, um, their published work. So if you're having trouble accessing it because you don't have a subscription or that your your place of work doesn't have one, um, feel free to email and we can share that with you. Awesome. Okay. And then my last question, if anybody has a little extra love money, which um, that's what my grandma calls it at the end of the month. Um, <laughs> I say calls it as if she's still living, but I know she's right there. Um, where would you recommend they could donate to, or is there an organization that you'd like to support? You mentioned the disabled athletes of St. Louis, but like, is there who, where can they, what can they do? Yeah, well, um, we are going to actually have a uh, FSU puts on a great to give campaign. Um, it is not open yet. It's like a one day or two day thing. So I can send it to you. Although actually, hmm, that might happen before this airs. So we might get <laughs> but they can at least be ready for it next year. So what is it called? Yeah, so um, this year we are proposing a small um, fundraiser to support the development of our that like space that is for like not a preschool, but kind of like preschool type programming and for the development of the outside space related to that. Um, so that's something that we are doing. That's the FSU's great give. And then you just kind of have to surge communication science and disorders. Um, but like you said, Disabled Athletes uh, Sports Association in St. Louis is a great organization. They are not like specific to AAC and Friendship, but they do really great work. And they got me going in this field. So um, that would be a good option, too. Awesome. Michelle, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. It was fun. Um, folks, if you're listening, uh, you can find us at First Bite Podcast on Instagram. Uh, that is automatically attached to the First Bite Podcast Facebook page. So whatever, normally whatever, unless I screw up the hyperlink, whatever I post on Instagram shows up on the Facebook page. And if it doesn't, you can guarantee that I posted it and I screwed it up somehow. But check us out there. You know, a, um, I'm always so grateful when you get on the First Bite um, uh, Apple page and give us a review after you listen to an episode. We love your kind words and thank you for being with us on our uh, nerdy SLP adventures and journey to expedite research to practice. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Mm-hmm.
Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. Mm -hmm.